You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospay. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. Paul Gamble and Christoph Jospay join me. We were in Oakland the other day and I really wanted to do the uh, Invisibilia opener. Have you guys ever listened to that? It always starts with, and here we are in beautiful downtown Oakland on Radio Row. Have you ever, have you ever heard that? <laughs> and then we were in Oakland the other day and I missed my chance to do it. I, I heard it here first. But we're in Berkeley. We're in a bungalow. Yeah, we're close enough. Yeah. <laughs> sitting across from us is David Hodgson. Have to give credit to LinkedIn for how I know David. I saw an article that he shared and then I clicked his profile and there was a subline that said something about accelerating the flow of capital into landscape regenerative something, something about telling people how to spend their money and put money to places where it's needed to, to solve climate change. And and I felt, wow, this is a guy that I'd like to know. And I sent him a note and we connected and had a very nice chat over LinkedIn and or over Skype rather. And something hit off. I it, it felt like, okay, let's let's stay in touch. And here we are. Now we're now we're having a podcast together. So David came from one part of life into another. You sort of had a career at Microsoft and Sony and electronic arts. And now you're trying to put money into things that can solve climate change. How did you get to where you are? And why are you sitting here in this table on the reversing climate change podcast? <laughs> Sometimes these get so accusatory. <laughs> like, why are you? <laughs> why am I here? That is a good question. And the answer is, so I had a midlife crisis. So I was a, yeah, I mean, I was a software engineer for the first half of my life. Well, hopefully, that wasn't quite half of my life. But yeah, I was a software engineer. My father was diagnosed with cancer. And I suddenly, and I was writing games at the time, which is why electronic arts and whatever else. And that made me realize that I should be doing something a bit different with my life. So I ended up going back to college, getting an MBA in sustainable business stuff, and read Paul Hawkins' Ecology of Commerce. And that book blew my, that was the first book they had us read. <laughs> and my life has never been the same since. And then, yeah, spent the last seven years or so trying to really figure out what needed to be done. And every direction that I turned in, I found that people were going, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough money. And at the same time, on the other side, it was quite obvious that there were large pools of money that were starting to become very interested, particularly in climate-related activity, but it wasn't quite the connection hadn't quite been made and i'd like to try to figure out how to solve problems as a general rule so i was just like okay how do we help or how can i help that money get moving into the places that it really needs to get moving into and realize that land regeneration was kind of the at least the thing that seemed to make the most sense to me was the focus on the term for this is impact investing but I know some people just want these projects to be justifiable economically on their own terms, too. Are we are we approaching this point, or is it sort of still a quasi-charitable endeavor to give money to these projects? It's well, there's this yeah, the con there's a concept of blended finance, which is where you are trying to bring together capital that is both market rate return seeking as well as capital that is more philanthropically oriented, less interested in return, or less interested in financial return, 
blending those two things together. The, there are a lot of projects now that can make it on their own, but there are still there's still quite a significant subset that does require form of philanthropic underwriting, particularly because the space is still so new that fiduciary responsibility for big pools of capital just requires a very generally likes to see a very long track record so that it can feel really oh i can put money there and i know exactly what's going to happen and that history just doesn't exist yet sufficiently to really unlock massive flows of capital i would love to have enough money where i was just like i don't i don't care about the return just do a good thing that's <laughs> pulling for Nori to work. That no. sounds, sounds fun to me. I'm pulling for it too, but you bring up some really good points there, David. There are different flavors of capital and you're talking about blending them all together. I mean, on one on the one hand, you've got grants, which can get things going. On the other hand, you've got philanthropy on... Oh, we only have two hands, but I'm going to keep using the other hand. <laughs> You're an octopus. Uh, on the next hand, on the next tentacle, you have you know different pieces of first loss capital, and then maybe the venture capitalists want to come in and see a much larger return. And kind of all of that is part of private equity, where maybe someone wants to own a piece of land and see the returns of that land over time. And you're throwing it all into the blender and making a smoothie and saying, "Drink this because it's going to restore the health of the planet." And and it's a coordination challenge. And if we drink this, we can actually do it. We can actually solve climate change. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. Each one of those types of money and the people managing each one of those types of money think very differently from one another. So it really, you know, there's a real challenge in getting them all in the same room or at least, yeah, in coordination of that because you have to understand what each one of those what their requirements are because it's really different so there's a lot of overhead in trying to do that coordination which is why it's not widespread yet do you ever have a case where you have someone who cares a lot about returns and then other people care a lot about the impact of this investment and then you take some of the returns from the people who care about impact and give it to the person who cares about returns to make a deal does that happen that does happen is that that's pretty common did I just rumble you? I know, the, I know how this works now. <laughs> it happens and yeah, it's tricky because one group of people definitely ends up feeling slightly, can you know, emotionally end up feeling slightly exploited by that. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, you, you just care about the impact, right? So we'll just take a couple of points off that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> but then that's why thing, you know, carbon market, type activity where there's ways to monetize other ecosystem service production is actually really important, right? Because that can help plug those those capital gap. So that that extra money, so that you can get market rate return back to the mainstream investors can come, doesn't need to come philanthropically. If it can come through monetizing, you know, water, carbon, whatever, that's really helpful. So I'd like to get get into the weeds, literally and figuratively, because we're talking about landscape regeneration. And that is going to be the first supply of the carbon removal marketplace that we're setting up. So let's let's use some hypotheticals. It's called Farmer David. But <laughs> Farmer Farmer David has a plot of land. He's been practicing certain practices which have depleted the soil health. He plows it year over year. He's spending a lot of money, fertilizer. 
and he wants to make more, but he also wants to do the right thing. But oh, he, he doesn't own his land. Here comes investor Paul. And Paul says, okay, Farmer David, uh, I'm going to buy up this land from someone else. And I'm now going to tell you, you have to do these certain things that are going to restore your health of the soil and make me money and make you money along the way. And these practices will be rotating your crops using no-till and planting cover crops. Okay, let's go. Is that a deal that we might see in the future? Can we start to see some of these landowners and landholders and farmers all working in parallel, kind of working toward a regenerative and restorative a restoration of some of the farmland, which has really depleted the health of our planet? Uh, the simple answer is yes. And there are people doing that right now. So I hope Craig Wishner actually uh, responds to that email, a very terse email I used to introduce you guys the other day. Farmland LLP is basically, that's their model. They're buying up degraded, conventionally farmed land that has thus degraded and instituting um, yeah, new financial, uh, new management, land management practices on it that are regeneratively oriented so that the land does regenerate. Yeah, he's been quite successful so far is my understanding. Yeah, so that's a, I mean, it's a, it's a good model. And we are seeing that starting to emerge. I mean, he's on his third fund, I think, second, third fund. First fund was a $100 million fund buying up land. And then they, they're managing the land. Who's actually doing the direct farming? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> right. Here we are in the Bay Area. And if, if I want to make a lot of money, I'm not going to invest in a farm. I'm going to invest in the next delivery app or the next Uber of whatever. Right. So we're talking about capital that has to be much more patient than the traditional sources of Yep. wealth generation that we have. So what, what are some of the challenges that we run into in this space? And how do you address some of that? Most of us come from a more of the technology world. So we're used to dealing with venture capitalists. A majority of the money that is being managed out there, VC is a minority of the money that exists. Pension funds and whatever else are by far the largest capital managers. And they are generally seeking 7 8% returns. Craig with Farmland LLP, I think he got a 13% return on his first fund, 13, 14%. Pretty good. But they mostly buy bonds and very conservative investments yeah. and stuff like that. Well, right? but they generally have a, you know, a certain proportion of VC money actually comes from pension funds. So most pension funds, mm -hmm. you know, they have a very diverse you know, asset allocation where there's super high risk VC at one end, where they, I mean, you still own, if you're a general partner in a VC, you're still only expecting 5% return across a fund of funds or something, you know, 7% return, whatever. You're not expecting those high returns. If you look at the returns from the VC business as a whole, yeah, you get these occasional hits, right? But in aggregate, the return on capital put into it is not the hundred times. It is still like... Yeah, you have like one you expect to go 30x or whatever, and then you have most of them that will probably fail. Like the next... Yeah dog delivery photo whatever amalgamation of, of app ideas that you see many of those will fail i think we should probably pivot nori into a dog delivery it's, photo sharing app immediately yeah. <laughs> you approve paul <laughs> paul hates this too by the way like he, i heard him rant the other day on this this is my rant about the the bay area is that there's a lot of focus on kind of things that aren't meaningful towards solving world problems and no 
My, my answer would be no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so glad that's settled. Nori is sticking on its mission to try to reverse climate change, and it very much aligns with David's mission of accelerating the flow of capital. Let's talk about the flow of capital. Where is it today, and how do we crank it up? And add, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Let's start. Sounds with like that you're question. going to do it anyway. I'm, so. I'm going to. I'm going to do it. So there's there's a follow up to my question, but let's let's talk about really the accelerating the flow, because that's what's needed here, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I like mapping systems um, as a former software person, so I'm a big systems person. So yeah, I just start, I went looking for where the big pools of capital actually were and realized that they were inside pension funds and that these pension funds do some number of trillions of dollars in pension funds collectively, which if you look at the total aggregate world wealth amount, quite a few very large asset managers, right, who are managing... I mean, BlackRock is the largest, I believe, who are, and they've got, what, $4 trillion of assets under management mm-hmm. or something? And yeah, there's a few others who are sitting on similar size pools of capital. And obviously, they have very diversified capital allocation strategies. But overall, if you can move, that's the money we want to be moving. And the, you know, the Divest Invest folks have done a really good job of persuading people that they should be these large asset managers that they should be and their clientele that they should for university endowments for philanthropic endowments or whoever else who mandating these asset managers to allocate their capital they're the ones who are going look we don't want to be in carbon we don't want anything to do with carbon and we would actually quite like to see carbon reduction biodiversity increase and water so my understanding is there's a mandate out there from large pools of capital to the asset managers to go, can you do something? <laughs> can you actually do something that's going to fix the problem, please? <laughs> right, right. And so just for our listeners, define divest. That means move your money away from things that continue fossil fuels and those ultimately become stranded assets. Because when we do the math around climate change, we can't continue to freely emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. There's already too much greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So there's a real urgency to slow down the flow of the greenhouse gases, stop the flow with renewable sources of energy, and actually remove those excess greenhouse gases through various land management and other practices. I hear what you're saying, and all this makes sense. But if I'm a pension fund, I've got a whole lot of money, and I write checks with many commas behind them. And I'm not looking for kind of a one-off farm. And one of the other points also is... There are no unicorns in farms. We can kind of take a global average and some do better than others, but no one's going to give me a 30x return. So so you need the kind of, okay, I'm happy with this year over year steady increase. One of the arguments that I like is to say, okay, you're not investing in things that will become stranded assets. You're actually investing in things that will, will make you more resilient, right? So here we're talking about farms and by practicing regenerative agriculture, your farms suddenly become more drought resistant, which makes them more reliable to sort of expect that we can still produce food where we counted on producing it before. So that that's a good thing. I, I'm still not convinced. We've got a large pool of capital. We've got kind of small farms. You're a systems guy. And so you clearly think about how to coordinate the flow of this capital into these different farms. What are some of the roadblocks along the way? Like you said, the, the capital likes to write checks that are probably north of $100 million. The intermediaries, kind of the investment banking function that normally then deals with the, or the fund managers 
who then take those pieces of capital and decide what to do with them, they generally can't justify their business model if the money is less than $100 million. And yet, most of the landholders, especially in developing country contexts, you're breaking it down to, oh, look, here's this smallholder here who needs $50,000 or whatever, you know, or maybe even less. So that aggregation of there's a real problem. I mean, the search costs there seem quite high. Yeah. Yeah. Find those people and monitor them for very little money. It seems probably hard to do that. I mean, if you bundle them all together, maybe at some point it becomes worthwhile, but it does seem logistically complex. Yeah, it's logistically complex. And that's bumped into that issue in various conversations I've had with people. I mean, it's, it's the reason the World Bank likes to recreate mega dams rather than whatever else, because it's just way easier to manage the, the financial piece of writing a you know a $5 billion check than it is a whole bunch of $50,000 checks. I think that technology is one of the key things that can help solve that, especially potentially blockchain-related uh, things. Oh, I've um, heard of that. We didn't even put yeah. those words in your mouth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Looking at developing country contexts where there is you know, digital banking, because people have leapfrogged M-Pesa or whatever, on one end, I've seen some really interesting blockchain land registry stuff, because quite often in many of these contexts as well, there's no smallholder. There hasn't historically been very strong land tenure, right? Is this the country of Georgia? They're doing this, right? They probably are. Yeah. I know it was... I think there's probably a couple other ones there's too. There's a few. Yeah, there's a few. But if you've got the digital banking piece, you know, phone-based banking, digital tenure, and some kind of satellite or some version of remote sensing that can say, yes, these ecosystem services have been produced or this activity has occurred, then you can great, you should be able to greatly reduce a lot of those kind of aggregation and transaction costs, at least it's part of one of my theories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get hung up on that quite a lot. That's a hard problem. I yeah. mean, I, I think it's a good theory. I think it kind of speaks to economies of scale versus economies of numbers. And if you can automate the numbers, then you meet that economies of scale. Is that maybe the inspiration behind a thousand landscapes? Because if I add up a thousand landscapes, maybe I get to something that is indeed a million, hundred million dollar check. Oh, well, hopefully a, a thousand landscapes would hopefully get to a, a several billion dollar check is the the idea there we can't okay. we can't give you that don't yeah, not, <laughs> don't, no, don't come yet. to us asking for it <laughs> hopefully somebody can yeah so the international development community came up with this they've been pushing this what they call landscapes and however in the in the normal world as i've been discovering as i've been talking to people here in the bay area in particular most people hear the word landscape and they think oh my garden or whatever it is right but in the international development community a landscape is a very very large area you know it could be tens of hundreds of square kilometers i mean significant pieces of mm. land where these ngos have kind of gone oh look we've got palm oil production we've got sugarcane production we've got cocoa production whatever all these different agricultural um value chains and they've brought together all the players across all those value chains whose activities currently are generally leading to land degradation. And then they're going, oh, it'd be really nice if we um, stop doing that because, you know, the soil loss up there is screwing the water availability downstream. And, you know, and everybody is currently suffering from 
that land degradation. So everybody, and it's having an economic impact on their businesses. So they're willing to come together to identify how they can collectively shift those practices. And often these are smallholder collectives. So they've already, people have already aggregated themselves together, right, into generally co-ops. And so out of that, you can then identify all these different opportunities to change the basically the agricultural production across a region into a form that is regenerative and carbon capturing. And if you can aggregate all of those potential deals, which is kind of the core intent behind this whole thing, then you end up with, oh, look, we do this project in northern Honduras right now. And I don't know how much money is currently needed for this. But the idea behind it is they've identified all these things. We think there's at least $100 million needed for that. So, you know, that's it's a, palm oil, right? Is that what they do over there? Palm oil, sugarcane, cocoa, coffee, bananas. Historically, it was, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Banana Republic. The, the, the original. Phrase, yeah, the original <laughs> Banana Republic. Yeah, I remember we talked to Dave Montgomery, and he was saying that there's some, is it like 3 or 4% of like the carbon content? Or no, even just like the... The topsoil is going away. The quality of the soil is just disappearing. And it, that was a 3 to 4% loss of productivity every every year. Is that the statistic I'm misremembering? Oh. Something ugly, whatever it is, but it adds up pretty quick. I wouldn't be surprised. You wouldn't be surprised? Sounds about right. Kind of, kind of butchered that one, but you, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> so on that fact alone, Ross, I mean, I think there are all these really important reasons to start changing our practices, to start thinking about how to use the soil and the land in a regenerative way. And what Nori hopes to do is to add one additional incentive to that, which is to say, many of these farmers are not getting paid today for putting carbon in their soils, but they could be. And we could pay them by creating a direct way between buyers and suppliers of carbon removal credits. And now you have one more way to pay these farmers. So let me try something out on you. I'm a farmer and no, no, you're the farmer. So we're still they, God, more yeah, of these horrible analogies and metaphors. And I know this, this whole trip in San Francisco, we've just done like 12 or 13 metaphors now. <laughs> I won't do a metaphor on this. I promise. Okay. So David, the farmer is removing carbon in his soil and he's, he wants to get paid, but he wants to get paid in cash. And Nori the software platform that is backed by a blockchain and uses a token as a medium of exchange to pay for carbon removal comes in and says, hey, David, we want to pay you. We have data from satellites and other imagery and other Internet of Things devices, which can help measure and verify that the carbon actually has been removed. And year over year, you're going to get paid. And you, David, the farmer says, well, I don't understand cryptocurrencies or tokens, so give me cash. Enter Paul, the investor, who says, oh, that's fine. I'll take your carbon removal credits, David, and I'll give you cash. And then suddenly a new exchange happens where David is getting paid and Paul is holding on to the token, which hopefully is worth it for Paul. And Paul is able to see the price of the token and make determinations based on that risk profile. Now, David, you, not the farmer, should have, should have picked another name, is able to come in and look at the deal from a whole new perspective because he can now see, okay, this is also going to make investors money from a more holistic approach. How does that resonate? That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Interview over. We, we got what we needed here. Mic drop. <laughs> Quoted out of context forever. Yeah, no, that would be 
I absolutely ideal. I don't know if you've met David Bank yet, who runs Impact Alpha, but he's been actually on the kind of, he believes that smart investors, I don't know if there is a set of smart investors out there yet who are looking at carbon futures in that way. He believes somebody can make a lot of money <laughs> by doing exactly that. Right. If, Maybe they're going to listen to this podcast and then start thinking in that way. You mean like a derivatives market for carbon? Well, yeah. Buying up carbon credits now at the current price, you know, from whichever market, because they believe, have a strong belief that in 10 years time, carbon is going to be priced or, yeah, people will want those carbon credits in some form or another. Yeah, I guess we have the, the luxury. Well, the token gets reused in our platform, but when the credits are actually bought separate from the token, and that credit is immediately retired, gratuity. So, but we all also talked to Alden on our team about the possibilities of a futures options market swaps, how that would look inside of, we wouldn't run that obviously, but I think people in general would, I don't, I don't know how much we can say about this, but if people bought Nori tokens at the launch, they would be effectively speculating that these tokens are going to be worth a lot more. So if you're a big institutional buyer, you would probably want to buy as early as you could because you think they might go up to 30 or $50 and you'll be able to get quite a discount on uh, removing carbon. Yep. But we love thinking about how the financial market will work and how they will facilitate this and how people will plan, especially big funds who that adds up pretty quickly compared to you or I doing it. So I imagine these derivatives markets would be quite useful. So that's the kind of thing that I like to talk about and think about too. <laughs> uh, it sounds like a smart play. Uh, you're also assuming a fair amount of change for the regulatory regime and what happens with various treaties. And then you have to assume the tech. Do you buy any offsets now? Do you ever do that? Uh, I have done on flight, primarily when I fly places. I have, okay. you know, just minimal offsets. That's our. Uh, that's the one that we we whip on the the worst because I I've never I've been offered that and I never want to do it because I don't know what's actually happening there. Yeah, so uh, I'm hoping a lot of those problems come through in our in our solved here in the near future. But on the reg, well, just talking about the regulation thing for a second. So the the British government, there was some report that I just saw go by this morning where the British government have become very worried about soil health. Uh, so they're, uh, I'm not quite sure exactly, I didn't read through the report yet, exactly what they're planning on doing, but it's the first time I've seen, uh, they're planning on do, doing some, making some kind of concerted action to restore soil health across the UK. Just by policy? Uh, At the policy level, yeah. Oh, okay. Which would then imply regenerative farming activity becomes... They're going to incentivize, strongly incentivize that. And then, the, you know, the French government with their, what is it, 50 ppm, uh, which is also around soil carbon stuff. The Secretary General of the Commonwealth, Patricia Scotland, is it? Where they, the Commonwealth were, uh, which is the biggest voting block at the UN, I believe. Yeah, they've got, there's a strong interest there too around soil stuff. So, and you know whatever the Chinese government are doing, which is pretty impressive, at least at the environmental regeneration level, I would be, I think, will be quite surprised over the next five years, at the, especially as Americans, even though my accent might might not sound like it. Um, yeah, it's a Jersey accent, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the while while U.S. policy policy regime may not shift too much, the rest of the world is. Not the US. 
<laughs> we, we like to forget about that. I always say we're babied by two oceans and we're just sort of doing our own thing. Don't have to pay attention to anything else. Everyone speaks English and that's both very convenient, but also uh, we get kind of locked into our own little world over here. I think we're all citizens of the world. <laughs> which which hostel were you staying at when <laughs> hey it's berkeley man if i heard someone say that at, at like traveling i'd be like i gotta go <laughs> i don't want to get into this thing so just because we really like to define things and you got an mba in sustainability and now you're talking about regeneration and there's some distinctions between those two ideas can you spell that out for us please maybe so rege- also as part of my mba we had to watch this pioneers talk from bill mcdonough where, which was from about 15 years ago, I think, where he was railing on the fact that who wants a sustainable marriage? You don't want a sustainable marriage. That doesn't sound like much fun, was the <laughs> was the analogy he was using at the time. Um, yeah, where you want things, you know, and if you look at the macro economy as a whole, any single piece of sustainability, nothing out there right now, no, no corporation is actually, they may be taking actions to move towards sustainability, but even if they were sustainable, you know, it just means we're not increasing the damage that's already been done. So sustainability, just as a concept, is somewhat of a weak concept. And you know, we have done some damage <laughs> to the environment. Um, so yeah, I mean, so at a macro level, if you look at the relationship between human civilization and the biosphere, uh, right now that is a degrading relationship, and we need it to be a regenerative relationship. So, you know, regeneration means that whatever action you take makes things better rather than just leaving them the same. And then, so, you know, what we're looking for is actions that make things better, particularly make the biosphere more productive. One one of the good markers for that is soil water retention, which amounts to carbon in the soil, is is one of the key indicators because once you have water productivity in an area and well water car the water carbon kind of interaction occurring then that leads to yeah a productive biosphere um then you start getting into okay so, but what are the practices that do that and that you know <laughs> I, I prefer to stay at the at the more philosophical i guess the more conceptual level and let the uh, let other people worry about what the actual practices are that sit on top of that that lead to those results Right. You're only a farmer in our hypothetical example. You're still yes. David, the, <laughs> the guy who tells impact investors how to spend their money Yes, and, and other sources of capital. Yeah. Great. <laughs> I, I love the marriage analogy. Yes. Let's, let's have a happy marriage. Let's not just try to make it less bad. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, or just tolerable. You're just going through with it. Yeah. Not, not, not an ideal outcome. I could make a comment about my parents at that point. <laughs> oh, well, you're English, right? Yeah. This is just like years of resentment and quiet passive aggression. <laughs> do, do, I, do I have you pegged? <laughs> no, no comment. Moving on no, no from there. Comment, yeah. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground so far. I'm really curious to kind of think about, oh man, it's another metaphor, but it's the domino effect. Dominoes are going to fall. This is going to happen. We are optimistic that we are not only going to solve climate change as a humanity, but we're going to do it in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And in order for that to happen, a whole suite of things need to play out. So describe to us how you see it going. You're not going to ask him if he's king of the world. <laughs> what does he do? Do you want to be king of the world? You, you can, you can no, either be or king, king. Or you, yeah, you can also be sort of consigliere to the sort of philosopher mafia king. that owns. Yeah, philosopher king, if you must. 
Wow, that's a that's quite a large question. So it does seem. So yeah, f- five years ago, I felt like crap around a bunch of this stuff. Maybe seven years ago, I probably was you know curled up in a corner somewhere, going, "Oh my god, what the hell is happening?" And somebody, uh, a friend of mine, used an example of, uh, or he'd been around when the computer. Or, I can't say the computer was being invented, but in the early days of the software industry. And it was, oh, somebody over here was just focused on doing, creating fast memory. Somebody over here was focused on doing, you know, something else. And at a certain point in time, and each one of those people didn't necessarily know the other people were doing whatever, but across time, what happens is all of that activity integrates and a whole new set of things become possible. You know, you end up with the internet and now, well, <laughs> I'm not sure the internet's the best example to use, right, at this precise moment, um, given what our current political situation is. But the, yeah, but there's all this independent activity that is occurring that we don't know about. And then it starts to become visible to each, you know, everybody starts to become visible to everybody else. And then you can go, oh, if we put this thing together with this thing together with this thing, then this is possible. And, you know, the whole thing stacks stacks up in that way. What I'm seeing right now, especially around regeneration, the uptake of the regeneration concept, while it's not visible on Google search, seems to be very large and very widespread. And I think what's we're in this phase right now of, okay, people have spent the last 20, 10, 15 years figuring out how to do impact investing and developing these different financial instruments and whatever else. There's another bunch of people who've been creating scientific tools, models to understand, you know, how ecosystem services and whatever are produced. There's a bunch of people who've created sensors. And now these all of these things have reached a level of maturity whereby when they integrate, or as people start playing at that next level up the stack, start putting those things together in novel ways, then it's will be very surprised at what will actually happen as a result of that. So that's, that makes me feel much better because I think things can move much more quickly than we believe is, than we would, well, at least than I used to believe was possible. So You're also approaching it from the direction of people being able to monetize new services and create new financial instruments that have not existed yet. So if you're able to use ecosystem services and have that be something that was previously unmonetized, now you can make money from doing it. Seems like a lot of people would want to do that. I'm sure plenty of these farmers who have uh, used conventional agriculture for a long time, they're now seeing their productivity decline. And it's probably an easy sell for you a lot of these times to work with farmers or they, they want to be involved. I know a lot of these people care about their land quite a bit too. Sometimes people get real hung up on the, the Monsanto's of the world and think that uh, people involved in conventional agriculture don't care about their land. But in fact, I'm sure when you're working with them, they're probably very excited about what you're doing and what you're helping to fund. Um, there's this new, relatively new friend of mine called Abe Brown, and he's got a thing called Land Map. He's a cattle grazing guy, and he's actually developed this sensor system to measure ecosystem service production on farms, particularly to help grazers so they can move their cows around to the right place at the right time when there's low water, less rainfall or whatever. Measures aquifer recharge, does all all sorts of interesting things. And yeah, I mean, he's finding he's finding exactly that, that farmers, especially because it's a low margin business, and they, I mean, they do care about the land, but they also care about their profitability and doing a lot of this stuff 
means, okay, we're paying less for inputs. We don't need to, you know, our cattle aren't going to die because they're not getting enough, you know, enough grass, whatever it is, or we'll get higher price in the marketplace. So it actually works for them in many different dimensions. So it's always good if you can align the financial. But yeah, and, and he's seeing there's a lot of farmers who really would like to be doing things very differently. I mean, he's primarily focused in the US, but yeah, he, I mean, his colleague who's Gabe, Gabe somebody or another, who's one of the really famous kind of carbon farming cattle grazing people, he gets 4,000 letters a week from farmers who want to understand what it is that he's doing. You, yeah. You guys should wow. talk to Abe, by the way. <laughs> that sounds fun. Do we get to wear uh, hats? Like we get to wear a hat, hard hat ones, maybe a cowboy hat well, this time? That, that, that would make <laughs> us a soil, a soil carbon cowboy. And we actually- Carbon wranglers? <laughs> yeah, we met Julio Friedman, the carbon wrangler. But oh. also Peter Bick is filmed a yeah. documentary about soil carbon cowboys, which turned me on to this whole concept several years ago. And I just thought it was so fascinating because- it's a healthier way of producing meat as well, because they're now kind of not factory farmed and all stuck in one spot, but they're moving around and eating the grass or the whatever at the height of that grass. And then it makes the whole land way healthier and it saves them money. And hey, wouldn't it be cool if this just were one more incentive that said, we can measure how much carbon's being stored in those soils. So we'll pay you to do this as well. And so we're really excited about that concept kind of fitting in the general methodologies that we're building on the Nori platform. I just want to pick up one thing that you brought up earlier and call out our CTO of Nori, who is a software engineer, and felt hopeless about dealing with climate change. Like he's he has these skills and doesn't know how to apply them. But now, as you sort of describe these different bubbles coming together, that software engineers such as yourself as well can figure out ways to insert themselves in this collective problem. And I think for us, that's really exciting. So I'm going to throw you with one final question, David. Maybe there are some impact investors listening and some two, three, maybe four comma club type people. What message do you have to them on how they can start to put their money in places that will maximize their returns and also generate an impact on the environment? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's, a, that's a, uh, an unfair question. Um, <laughs> we always save the gotchas for the end yeah we trapped you now yeah what is the that's a really good question actually most of the well in the regenerative space let's say generally that's still emerging as an kind of an impact investing focus so there's and there's some really good people doing some very good thinking around that and starting to set up fund structures to do that um and there's a conference coming up here in san francisco may the first oh yeah i guess i should give kevin jones a plug for the uh, regen 18 conference on may the first and second where we're looking at bringing together uh investors and in you know people doing things that need in, you know, but yeah but need investment across the regenerative spectrum and that promises to be a really interesting conference looking at looking looking at a, a full quite a wide spectrum of activity and then there's you know slow money has been doing really good work for the last i don't know how long slow money's been around now in terms of local investing in local food system activity around the u.s they could be outside the u.s too yeah so th those would be the kind of two primary things because otherwise now the spectrum of 
impact investing opportunities as a as a thing. There's a couple of people I know who've uh, who are running ETFs. One of which is Change Finance, Donna Morton. That's an ETF I think that's primarily. I'm not quite sure what the exact uh, criteria are. And then um, Ian Monroe with Etho Capital, and that's that's an ETF that's uh, focused around uh, yeah carbon. So they they filter companies into that based on their basically their carbon uh, intensity. I think an ETF is an exchange traded fund and it attracts uh, certain classes of assets. Yeah, or, okay. yeah. And so you know from a from a retail investor perspective, there's stuff that's starting to emerge. Then. You know, from the smaller investor perspective, I, yeah, it's things like slow money and whatever else. And then there are, the, well, Craig Wishner with uh, Farmland LLP, where you know you need to be accredited. There's a broad range of things now that are available to accredited investors, um, and it's the and finding the one, you know, the cover again a very large gamut of activity. And what's Tim Freundlich? Impact assets. Impact assets would be a good place to go to understand some of that. They kind of have a a list basically they have the impact assets 50 i think it is which is what they think of as the top 50 impact investing funds that are out there that are open to uh yeah i, I don't know if it's all accredited investor stuff but but on the regenerative end in particular there's nothing yet that's really focused just on that as far as i'm aware the surprisingly hard question, actually, <laughs> as you got into it. I thought you answered it very nicely. Yeah. And it, it seems like there's one takeaway, which if you're an impact investor, you should probably book your ticket to San Francisco to be there on May 1st for Regen 18. Yes, you should. Sounds quite fun. I'd like to add a, a brief errata section because it's actually 99% invisible in Roman Mars. And it wasn't invisibilia. And it would haunt me forever if I didn't say it on air. <laughs> Just every time this went out, I'd be like, there's a, there's a direct air at the very beginning of this podcast. So sorry, Ro- Roman Mars. Uh, I like your podcast. Uh, David, thanks for, for, for being here. <laughs> thanks. thanks. How, do you, how do you like that uh, socially anxious uh, closeout? <laughs> <laughs> Makes me feel right at home. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot. This has been fun. Thank you. Thank you. This was, yeah, this is cool.